the Gospel of John, chapter 7, three verses, reading from verse 37 through verse 39. In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, out of his inward part shall flow rivers of living water. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. We've been trying in these services to emphasize the fact that the key to life for you and for me is not in us. It comes from a completely different dimension, and it is something that we cannot produce, and it is something that we cannot perform. The rich ruler is illustrative of this. You will remember that when he came to Jesus, he came saying, Good Master, what must I do that I might inherit eternal life? He had all that this life could give. He had his youth. He had his wealth. He had social position. He was in a, in a place of power. He had all that a man could, could ask from this life. But he came saying, Lord, there must be something more because there is yet within me a desire for what I do not have. That really is basically what we're trying to say, and that's what eternal life is. It is something not inherent, not intrinsic to us. It is something that comes from beyond, from the outside to us. Being a Christian is not me or you at our best. Being a Christian is having a life that is not our own come in and take over and control our person. A.B. Simpson called this when he said, God will not judge you for what you do or for what you don't do, but primarily he will judge you for what you do not let him do in you. Because you and I are deeply buried enough in sin that at our best we cannot do what God wants, and really when we are left to ourselves, we cannot perform his bidding. So God judges us primarily because we do not believe in his son and we do not let the life that he has offered us come into us so that then God in us will enable us to live a life beyond our own. You're familiar with that verse in Galatians 2.20 where Paul speaks and says, For I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, it is not I, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Dramatically spoken, I am crucified with Christ. I have come to the end of myself. God has brought me to that place. And when I come to the end of myself and my way, then he speaks, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, it is not the end, it is the beginning. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. We have said that the life of Jesus is an illustration of this, because he came to be our Savior. And when he came, though he was born of Mary, he was virgin born. Someone has said that the difference between Christ's birth and yours and mine 
was, yes, in his virgin birth, but it primarily was in something else. That when he was born, he was not born for the first time to live. He had lived before he was born. In fact, he had an eternity of life before he was conceived in Mary's womb. So that when he came here, he came to another pattern of life. But he could say to the Pharisees, when they said, you are not yet 50 years old, he could say, before Abraham was, I am. I am the eternal one. So his life was one that came into our world from beyond, and he came to give to us himself. It's parabolic in that at the end of his life he ascended. And as we spoke last night about the second coming, the salvation of the world is intimately related to that day when he will come again. As the angel said, you've seen him go into heaven in the same way that you have seen him go into heaven. He will come again. And when he comes, it will be for the culmination of the redemption of those that have put their faith in him. So the life of Christ, the Christian life, is really Christ's life within us. That's the reason we referred to that passage in John 3 about Nicodemus, a good man and a religious man. But Jesus said what you need is a new birth, to wear a new life, one that is not your own, one that you cannot produce, comes into you, a life from beyond, a life from above. And then that life will enable you to live as God wants you to live, God within you. You will remember that many times Jesus said this kind of thing. John 5, 40. You will not come to me that ye might have life. And for Jesus, having life was involved with coming to him. You remember the famous passage in John 10, 10, where he speaks and says, I am come that ye might have life and that ye might have it more abundantly. Now, most of us tend to think of that more abundant part and think that when Christ comes to us, he gives us the more abundant life. But before he ever referred to the more abundant life, Jesus said, I am come just in order that you might live. And if you do not know me and if I do not come into your life, you will never know life, but your life, natural life that is yours, will be a living and an eternal death. Now, this is dramatically illustrated, it seems to me, and the person and the work of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life. When the Holy Spirit comes into the Christian's life, he comes from without and he comes to produce within us the life and the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And I'd like for us tonight to talk about the work of God's Spirit within you and me. You're aware, or should be, that in biblical terms, there is a very careful distinction at times between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Yet there is a unity within them, so that sometimes it is difficult to separate their activity. But nevertheless, if you read it carefully, you will find that there are certain roles that are played by the Father that are different from those of the Son and that are different from those of the Spirit. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. So that the second person of the Trinity is a gift to us from the first person of the Trinity that we might be saved. So someone has said that it's the Father who planned our redemption. And it is the Son who provided it in the sacrifice of his own body on Calvary's cross. But it is the Spirit of God, that third person of the Trinity, 
that takes what Christ was accomplishing for us on Calvary, any shed blood in his poured out life, it is the spirit that takes that atonement and works it out within my life in saving grace so that I become a member of the redeemed and a member of the bride of Christ. Now, if that's true, and I believe it is without any question, that is the reason for the seriousness of sinning against the Holy Spirit. I am sure there are no more sober words ever spoken by Jesus than those that he spoke in this, in this relation. You will remember that he said, you can speak against the Father and the Son. You can sin against them, and these sins can be forgiven. But there is a sin against the Holy Spirit that has no forgiveness. And I do not think there is any question, but that the reason is that if the Holy Spirit stops working in my life, salvation and the potential for salvation stops in that moment. It is he who applies to me the merits of Christ's atonement on Calvary's cross. And if the Spirit is shut out of my life, there can be no redemptive work within my life. How careful then we ought to be about our relationship to him as he comes and moves upon our hearts and as he woos us and as he draws us unto the Son and unto the Father. The scripture makes very clear that no man ever comes to God on his own. What is it that makes a man get up some morning and decide that he wants to become a Christian? The reality is that there are not a great many people that get up some morning and decide they want to become a Christian. It usually is in a place like this that a man begins to say, wait a minute, there is something lacking, there is something wrong in my life, and I had better do something about it. It is not because he has sat down and thought it all through very carefully on his own and carefully surveyed all the options and decided that Christ is the best of these, and so he says, now I will become a Christian. Jesus was very explicit when he said in chapter 6 of John, no man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him. And when you see that in that 44th verse of the 6th chapter of John, if you look down at the 65th verse of that same chapter, as Jesus spoke to those Jews in that day, he said, the only way that a man can ever come to me is for God himself to make take the initiative and begin in that man's life a desire for redemption. Even the seeking of God is a work of God. It's a miracle. It is a strange and a paradoxical thing. But I think the scripture is clear. The first thing that the Spirit of God does is to try to get me in a place where I must confront Christ and cannot escape him. And that takes a good bit of doing for most of us. Because most of us are busy enough living our own lives, going our own way, doing what we want to do, satisfied with ourselves that it is not easy for God to get to us. And so the Spirit of God in his sovereign power almost like a puppeteer manipulating marionettes, moves us and moves the circumstances in our lives until one day there is no escape and we have to face the claims of God upon us. And that is the work of God. I remember reading one day the story of the crucifixion of Jesus with a particular attention to the two thieves that were crucified with him. You know, it's an incredible story. They began that day cursing him and reviling him. Why would any man ever curse Jesus? Why would any man ever want to revile him? But that's the way they began the day. 
Now you know at the end of that day there was one who had believed and was redeemed. But at the end of that day when Jesus' spirit went, went on to his father and when Jesus gave up the ghost, that second thief was still cursing and reviling Jesus. I thought, what could keep a man within a few feet of Jesus for six hours? And at the end of six hours, he would still be cursing. You know, I wonder if it isn't because of the fact he had to die next to Jesus. If you were a sinner and a wicked person and an evil person, and you had committed your life to it, and you had to die, how would you like to die right next jam up to pure love and pure goodness? I think if I were a sinner and had to die the way that man died, I think I would want some privacy too. And I think I'd be grateful that there was one other thief over there that was in the same boat I was in. I don't know, but I think that during the course of that day, that thief looked up to the heavens and said, Oh God, if I had to die on any day, why did I have to die today? And if I had to die on any hill, why did I have to die on this hill? And if I had to die next to anybody, why did I have to die next to somebody that's so opposite from me? Bad enough to be condemned to Jesus there. Now why did he have to die next to Jesus? You know what I've often thought? I wonder if it was not the goodness and the love and the mercy of God that watched him from the first time he ever told a lie, from the first time he ever started his petty stealing, from the first time he ever consciously, deliberately hurt another person. God looked down and said, how can I reach him? He's one of mine. He belongs to belong to me. My son is going to die for him. I want him in my kingdom. How can I get to him? Couldn't get to him when he shut himself off from the church. He couldn't get to him when he shut himself off from good people. He couldn't get to him when he put himself in the company of people who were opposed to everything for which God stood. And God watched him through the years get harder and more wicked and more lost. And God's father heart yearningly said, Well, if he won't come to me, I'll trap him. And if he's, going to, if he's not going to stop until the Roman government kills him, I'll see to it that when, they, when the Roman government does, it'll be jam up as close to my son as I can get him. And if there's no other way, in those closing moments of his life, he will have to face my son. And I think that's why he was crucified there that day. God will not, does not want to let any man perish without confronting his son. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Sovereign and moving to get you to the place where he can speak to you about who you are and what God wants to do in your life. Many of you know that Elsie came to Asbury because it had a pretty name in the World Almanac. When she wrote for that catalog, she was simply, she thought, doing what any high school girl would do that wanted to go to college. But out of that came her salvation and that of most of her family. 
Never had the foggiest idea really what she was getting into when she came to Asbury. One of the first nights, they had a sharing time out on the steps of Hughes. And as people began to witness to what Jesus meant to them, she nudged the girl next to her and said, they won't call on me, will they? Walked into the first psychology class, and the professor said, now let's everybody tell who he is and where he's from, and if you'd like to, a word of witness. There was only one other girl in the class who didn't give a testimony. And Elsa said, thank God there's one more like me here. But now why? Accident? Oh. My family became a Christian because my father took a trip he didn't want to take. Trapped in the cab of a truck, fruit truck. 800 miles a trip he didn't want to take. In the providence of God, they passed Indian Springs Holiness Camp Meeting, which is in session 10 days a year. There are many ways to make that same trip without going down that highway. And as they passed that sign, on the highway. My father said, let's stop and see what that is. And Henry Clay Morrison was preaching. And my father said to the, cat, to the truck driver, you go on, finish your business, and pick me up on your way back. I wouldn't be here tonight if it weren't for that. It was out of that that all of my family became Christian. Is that an accident? No. That is the sovereign work of the Holy Ghost operating in a person's life to get him to the place where he has the option for salvation. But you see, my father didn't initiate that trip. He went unwillingly. And so it is that C.S. Lewis talks about the king of love dragging some of us screaming and kicking into his kingdom. And that's the way we all come. It is he who, when he confronts us, gets us to where we confront Christ, that then he begins to convict us of our need. You read in the 16th chapter of John, and you will find that Jesus spoke and said of the Spirit, and when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And those are the key things, aren't they? And do you know a man can live all his life and never feel like a sinner until the Spirit of God touches him? And the minute he touches him, he'll know that he's a sinner. Of sin and of righteousness. A man will think he's, he's perfectly all right. He'll always measure himself by other people and say, I'm not too bad. Until the Spirit of God touches him, and then he'll say, oh no, I'm the worst of all sinners. Righteousness. And a man can live his life without ever a thought of judgment until the Spirit of God touches him, and in a moment he'll quake the most courageous and the boldest and the most brazen of men. I've always loved the story of the atheist who would come to church to upset people. And they were having a revival, and his presence every night messed everything up until one night the preacher saw him in the crowd and watched him, and people were conscious of him scoffing. And so the preacher walked back and stood right next to the end of the pew where that guy was sitting and bowed his head and prayed as loud as he could. He said, Dear Lord, you know how this fellow's hindering your work. He doesn't even believe you exist. Now get him out of the way one way or other so he'll either help us or, or quit hindering us and do it very quickly. And the man went forward and got converted. 
And somebody said, we looked at you and you were shaking. What were you shaking for? He said, because I was afraid he'd hear, hear his prayer. Now, uh, it's interesting. It's amazing when the Spirit of God comes and touches a person. Our radical change can take place very quickly. I got a phone call one morning when I was in a pastorate. Lady called me, well-to-do, prominent lady, very flippant. In fact, she was so flippant that I was really insulted. I started to hang up on her. And then something spoke and said, wait a minute, listen. And I said, what's the trouble? I'll be there in five minutes. And in five minutes, I was punching her doorbell. And I walked into her living room and looked at her and said, Betty, what's wrong with you? She looked back at me and said, I'm the filthiest, vilest piece of human flesh that the world has ever seen. I said, you remember the woman's board in the church, the best example of Gothic architecture in our part of the country. She said, I know all that, but I never knew what a sinner I was. I said, what do you mean, Betty? She said, do you know it was 18 years ago, and I thought I had forgotten it. And I thought everybody else had forgotten it. But that lousy Bible class of yours. It wasn't the Bible class. Now the Bible had something to do with it. Because you will notice that Paul calls the scripture the sword of the spirit. And when the word of God is rightly preached or rightly taught, it penetratingly will, under the spirit's work, bring conviction. She'd lived 18 years without any great guilt. And the Spirit spoke. And she knew who she was and knew without any doubt, without any question. It's he who convicts. Now it's he who quickens us into faith, brings us to that place where we see that we cannot save ourselves. There is nothing in us that can ever appease the wrath of God and there is nothing in us that can ever please him in his holiness that if we are ever to be saved, it's something he has to do for us. And it is the Holy Spirit who brings us to the place where we say, God, if I'm, ever, if I'm ever saved, you're going to have to do it. And then the Spirit begins to touch our hearts and say, yes, that's just exactly the kind of person he is. I read a sermon the other day from John Dunn on, mar on wedding, marriage. The sermon preached at a wedding. He talked about that day when God would marry himself to the church, Christ and the church. You know, in the old Anglican and Presbyterian tradition, when a person is to be married, you announce in the church for several weeks ahead of time what they call the bands. You publish the bands. I've been associated closely with the Presbyterian church where they still do that. And if you're going to be married there, the preacher for three Sundays before the wedding will stand up at 11 o'clock on Sunday morning and publish the bands and say, John Jones and Susie Smith are going to be married on such and such a day. If there is any man who knows any cause why these two should not be joined in holy matrimony, let him speak now or forever hold his peace. And the next Sunday, the preacher stands up and says, John Jones and Susie Smith are going to be married on such a day. And if there's any man who knows any just cause why these two should not be united in holy matrimony, let him speak now forever, hold his peace. Third Sunday, same way. Now, John Dunn said 
that in that last day, God is going to make me stand up. And he's going to make me stand up in the presence of all the virgins who've kept themselves pure through the ages. And all the confessors who've kept faithful even unto death. And all the martyrs who died for their faith. And Abraham who believed to God and it was accounted for righteousness. And Job who suffered all manner of afflictions and ever faltered in his faith. faith. And Lazarus and you'll make me stand up in the presence of all them. And then he's going to tell them every sin I've ever committed. And the virgins are going to say, you're not going to marry yourself to him, are you? And the confessors and the martyrs are going to say, you're not going to marry yourself to him, are you? And Abraham and Job and Lazarus are going to say, you're not going to marry yourself to him, are you? And he's going to say, I have married myself to him forever. And I thought, yeah, that's what he is. That's the kind of Christ he is. And it's the spirit that comes and magnifies Christ in your heart. And you see him and you say, he loves even me. There begins to be a faith within you that he will receive even the likes of you. And as that faith springs up, then there comes the precious witness of the Holy Spirit that is the witness. You notice whose witness? It's the witness of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit that Christ has received you and written your name in the Lamb's book of life and your sins are gone and a new life has been given to you. It's the Spirit, Jesus said, that would bear witness to him. Now, it's he who works in our lives and leads us on in the Christian life. Let me mention just a couple more things. It's he who chastens us from day to day and teaches us how we're supposed to live as Christians. It's he who reproves us. I remember when I first became a Christian and I had done something wrong and the Spirit of God chastened me and I felt great, great guilt and condemnation. And then I came across that passage in Hebrews where it says that he chastens every son because he loves him. And that if he doesn't chasten you, it means that you're not a true son. And I thought, thank you, Lord. You love me enough that you won't let me live wrong and be happy at it. You love me enough that you chasten me and correct me and teach me. I remember one day I turned to my father and spoke with a bit of anger. And I got up the next morning and had my quiet time. And as I knelt to pray, I said, now, Lord, what do you want me to do today? And the Lord said, well, I expect the first thing you better do is go see your dad. And I said, really, now, Lord? And he said, yeah, I expect that's the first thing you better do. And I said, well, I won't do it right now, but I'll do it today. The next morning when I got up to say my, have my quiet time, I said, now, Lord, what do you want me to do today? And he said very quickly, what you didn't do yesterday. And 
I said, Lord, is there any way out of that? Isn't it amazing how hard it is to do right? Isn't it amazing how difficult it is to do little things when they injure our pride? You'd have thought that I was making a major, massive life decision. Let me tell you, I was. Because <laughs> it is a major, massive life decision. Third morning I got up and he, I said, Lord, what do you want me to do today? And he said, no point in talking about it. And deep in my spirit that day I knew that I was in trouble unless I got it clear. I remember the day went through and I really had no opportunity and I had to milk an old cow every night. Hated her. Always had to milk her during the seventh inning of the baseball games. And I remember my father occasionally would go with me. That afternoon he went and I said, good. So all the way, about the distance of a short block, but a good block, I kept saying, I've got to, I've got to, I've got to. I got all the way there and never did it. I remember milking and all the time I was milking there was something inside me that said, are you going my way or yours? I got halfway home that night with him before I got up the courage, you know, and the energy, strength to do it. Man, it was like a dam breaking. I finally got it out. Some of the most difficult words I ever got out. I remember the minute I got through, clear, and got home, I went back to where I had my quiet time. One of the most rewarding worship moments of my life. presence of God, I didn't have to look for him. He was there. Because I'd been obedient. Holy Spirit quickening, chased me. Teaching, guiding. But the last thing I want to say is this. It's he who brings us to our consciousness of our need of his own fullness. Hear me very carefully in this. I'm not going to use theological language. I just want to talk out of experience and out of the word. It's he who brings us to Christ. And then it is he who begins to speak to us and show us our need for his own fullness within. Of course, the reason we need him is because of our unholiness. You know, it's one thing to become a Christian, and it's another thing to be Christian. It's one thing to be the noun, and it's another thing to be the adjective, or to have the adjective rightly applied to you. And so the Holy Spirit works in our lives. Do you know what a Christian is called in the New Testament? He's called a hagias. He's called a holy one. Really? The newest Christian in the New Testament is called a saint. You know that's not a reality, but that's a promise. So the believers in the New Testament are called saints. Not because they really are all really holy, but because that's what God is going to make out of every one of them. Now who is it that makes a man holy? 
how right that it should be the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit probes in a Christian's life and says, I want to possess you fully and wholly. And then your life will really magnify Christ. Because you see, as long as there is a corner of you that you're controlling and that is not under the control of the Spirit, it will magnify you and not Christ. Do you notice what the text said? This spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive, for the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. And God wants to bring me to the place where my total life gives glory to him. But that can only be true if my life is totally possessed by him. What made me lose my temper with my father after I became a Christian? Too much self-interest left. But there is a purging that the Spirit of God can do in a man's heart. Where instead of doing that, then love replaces it. And he reacts the way God wants him to react. But he'll never be able to do that in his own strength. No man can do that apart from the strength and the grace and the power of the Holy Ghost. And that's the reason that after a man is converted, he needs to walk with God until he comes to that place where the Spirit of God says, I want to fill you, possess you wholly, and fill you completely. And what's the mark? It's not a gift. It's his life being lived out. And don't let anybody fool you at that point. The evidence that you are filled with the Spirit it's not a special manifestation or gift. It is the life of God, the life of God's Spirit being lived out of you. And the prime characteristic of that is love. And when you come to the place where you love him more than you love yourself, love him more than you love your friends, love him more than you love your life, love him more than you love anything else, and love for him is the supreme motive of your life. You will be there because of the sanctifying work of the Spirit of God in your heart, perfecting your love for Him. In my own private Bible reading, I'm reading through the historical books of the Old Testament at the present time. I'm interested that every king is judged on one thing, whether he had a heart that was holy the Lord. And if he had a heart that was only the Lord, God was pleased. And if he didn't, God was not. Many a Christian who knows very well in himself that he's not only the Lord. The Spirit of God jealously keeps on working, just like he did from the first day. He set his eyes upon that man to reach him, to bring him to the place where he is exclusively God. He wants to present me as a whole person and a whole gift to Christ. That's what it means to be sanctified and meet with the master here. And then what happens? It's not your life that's reflected in you. It's Christ's life now that has possessed yours. And then you become the witness that he wants to be, wants you to be to him. Let me ask you. Where are you in your Christian progress? 
Are you still outside and he's saying to you, you need to find Christ? Are you a person who's known Christ and you've turned your back and you've walked away and he's tugging saying, you need to come back? Are you a believer and you know that your faith in him has not brought you to the place where you're holy is? And where that holy, that sanctifying spirit is filled and cleansed and purged your heart. Where the love of Christ rules and reigns within. Is he speaking to you say, that's what I want to do with you. Remember the one that tugs at you. It's not a preacher. And it isn't Asbury. And it isn't used auditorium. It's the Holy Ghost. And it is on him that our redemption depends.